My name's Christopher Ossel, but most people around here just know me as Topher. I was born August 21st, 1988 in Ottumwa, Iowa, a surprise child to Bill and Carla Ossel, who had thought having biological children wasn't possible for them, and had adopted my older brother Greg six years before. My birth came three months after the death of my paternal grandma, Catherine, and family legend has it that she got to heaven and told God, my family needed this baby, so no funny business. I quickly became the favorite grandchild of my paternal grandpa, Herman, and if any of my cousins want to fight about that, they know where to find me. I grew up in Centerville, Iowa, a small town of about 5,000 people, and my early childhood is what I would describe as idyllic. My parents loved each other, my brother was a bit of a troublemaker, but that was our normal, and I had great friends. My parents were both Catholic, and despite my many attempts to feign illness, we attended St. Mary's Catholic Church every Saturday night or Sunday morning without fail. Some of my earliest memories are of that building. I was enrolled in preschool there, which was in the church basement, and my mom played piano for masses most week, and my dad was a frequent Eucharistic minister and lector. Our priest, Father Joe Miller, is an incredible man. He was the kind of person to make you feel seen and known no matter how old you were. To this day, even my friends who have fallen away from faith point to him as an incredible example of compassion and kindness. My parents were both extremely hard workers. My dad was the administrator of St. Joseph's Mercy Medical Center, Centerville, and would often be showered, dressed, and off to work before I woke up in the morning, coming home just in time for dinner at 6.30 or 7. My mom worked part-time at a local clinic and also chased me and my brother around everywhere we went. I have wonderful memories of those early years. We lived in a neighborhood with several other kids, and congregating in the center of the cul-de-sac was common. After dinner was family time. We'd play board games, do puzzles, or gather around the TV. Whatever it was, we were together, and often, to my dad's frustration, our dog Charlie would faithfully lay herself down in the entry of whatever room we were in, guarding us from any traveling salesmen or stray cars that might be passing on the street outside. Holidays were big F family time for the Ossels. Easter meant visits from my dad's family or travels to my mom's on opposite years. Christmas season meant family reunions in Tama with my mom's family and then out to Michigan for New Year's with my dad's. All of this in addition to all the other family get-togethers that would happen with my dad's four brothers and sisters and my mom's six. Needless to say, I have a lot of cousins. My favorite trip though, each year, was to northern Wisconsin. My dad's family, including my grandpa, would rent cabins on Big St. Germain Lake and spend a whole week hanging out, playing games, chatting, and fishing. Those cabins quickly became a second home for me, my brother, and my cousins. And with three-fourths of the cabins rented out to our family, we pretty much had the run with the little resort we stayed at. When I was old enough, I graduated from preschool to elementary school, as you do, and I was enrolled in St. Mary's Catholic School. This was a big change for me. Instead of being in the church basement, I was now all the way across the church parking lot. My kindergarten class was 12 students, and that would balloon to 14 by the time I was in sixth grade. Big stuff. I was in it was in kindergarten that I first realized that my life wouldn't be perfect forever. In late April 1994, my family was eating dinner when the phone rang, and after a short conversation, my dad broke into tears. I don't know that I'd ever seen him cry before, but that was the night we found out that my grandpa, Herman, had passed away. I don't think I really understood what that meant at the time. The finality of death wasn't something that I could wrap my head around. 
Surely, my grandpa Ossel would still be waiting in his house in Illinois with his Oscar the Grouch hand puppet and way too many olives in his martini so that all of his grandchildren could line up in front of him to take one. I don't remember the funeral, but I do remember helping move things out of the house, and I still remember leaving it for the last time and feeling incredibly unsettled that he was no longer there. My dad would have several heart attacks throughout my elementary years. Those would lead to him quitting smoking and my mom to crack down on all of our diets. My dad was a diabetic, and when I was in first or second grade, my brother would also be diagnosed with diabetes. Sometime in those early years, my brother's best friend moved away, and Greg, who was never terribly good at making friends, fell in with a bad crowd of kids. Throughout junior high, he began smoking cigarettes and then marijuana, and my parents realized he'd been raiding the liquor cabinet, and we became a dry house. This was the second crack in my perfect little life, and I didn't appreciate it. It was around this time that I decided to be as low maintenance as possible for my mom and dad. Greg had all but cemented his role as the bad boy of the family, so that left me to be the good kid. Challenge accepted. Greg's grades plummeted, and his bad behavior rose in kind, and at some point he was sent away for treatment. I remember the first time he was arrested, the police came to our house to pick him up, and my dad, who was obviously furious and disappointed, asked the cops if he could have a few moments with his son before they took him to the jail. They agreed, and he drove out to a gas station, picked up a pack of cigarettes, and smoked one with Greg on the back porch. I don't know what they talked about, but I know that my dad understood the power of addiction and that his son was about to have a really hard time. I'll never forget watching through the sliding glass door as they both put out their cigarettes, hugged, and then Greg turned himself into the officer. Around that same time, a girl moved to town and joined my third grade class. Third grade me was immediately in love. We became fast and best friends, but I would end up chasing unrequited feelings for her through junior high. Another new student would introduce me to the concept of internet pornography, which would lead to a lot of guilt and struggles with self-image that wouldn't be resolved until much later in life. The remainder of my young life was fairly uneventful. Though the transfer from private elementary school to public junior high didn't seem all that scary, it proved to be terrifying when on the very first day of junior high, I saw a girl slam another girl's head into a locker while we were waiting to get into the band room. Junior high was also my first real encounter with bullying. A student who had once been a friend of mine decided that he didn't like me very much anymore and threatened to kill me if I attended one of the school dances. When I told my mom and dad I didn't want to go, they knew something was wrong immediately because obviously the girl I liked was going to be there, so I wanted to be there. And they eventually pried the information out of me and talked to the school principal, which I was sure meant that I was dead meat. It didn't mean I was dead meat. Nothing happened. By this point, Greg had been in and out of jail and treatment programs several times and could not or would not get his life together. I vividly remember a group therapy exercise we were all involved in where he was asked to stage our family as he saw the relationships. I remember watching with tears in his eyes, he took my, our mom, our dad, and me and put us on one side of the circle and staged, staged us like we were taking a family photo. Then he walked all the way to the other side of the circle and stood there. I was 12 or 13 and I couldn't understand how he felt so far from us. It broke my heart. Between junior high and high school, our family trip to Wisconsin was canceled, and my parents decided to go visit my aunt and uncle in Vermont. My brother, who had somewhat estranged himself from my dad's family at this point, decided he wanted to stay in Centerville, 
and me, my mom, and dad set off for a one-week tour of New England. On June 20th, 2003, it's never a good story when you know the exact date, is it? I remember fighting with my dad about sleeping arrangements in our hotel room. My mom and him were each taking one of the double beds, and I was relegated to the couch. 15-year-old me could not stand the injustice of this, and the last thing I said to my dad before going to sleep that night was that he sucked. The next morning, I woke up to the sound of my mom screaming my dad's name, and I sat up from the couch and saw my mom beginning chest compressions. I called 911, and she continued CPR until the ambulance arrived. My dad never moved. He had died from a sudden and massive heart attack while he got ready to go fishing with all of us that morning. From the hospital, we called Father Joe, and he went to my parents' house to be with Greg when we told him. I remember coming back to the hotel room and not being able to go inside. Mom went in by herself, collected our things, and as we were leaving, passed a maid. She stopped to tell, she stopped to tell the maid which room we were staying in, and through tears that her husband had died in there this morning, and there had been blood and vomit on the floor that she had tried to clean up, but would probably need some more attention. The fact that my mom could even care about what the cleaning staff would find is a testament to her strength and care for people. It's just who she is. I would learn a lot of things about my dad following his death. He was an extraordinary, extraordinary man, and his life touched so many others. The support and love we felt from people all over the country was overwhelming. Of course, to a 15-year-old who just lost his dad, it really didn't mean that much to me. I recall standing at the front of the church at my dad's visitation, and someone, thank God I can't remember who, told me that I needed to take care of my mom from now on. In retrospect, anyone who says this to a kid who just lost their dad deserves to be arrested. But that cemented for me my role as good, dutiful, and perfect son. My anxiety skyrocketed, and I gained probably 50 pounds that summer as I medicated myself with food and soda. Ten months later, just as we were trying to get our life back to some semblance of normal, my grandpa Joe died. He had been diagnosed with Parkinson's years before and was heavily medicated, but it felt like another brick thrown into a family system that couldn't support a feather. Not long after that, the police would make another appearance at our house. Greg had been living in the basement and apparently selling meth. He was turned in by his girlfriend at the time after she had been caught and agreed to bring an undercover officer to buy from him. All I knew at this point was that I didn't want anyone to see this mess. I hid everything I could from my friends and I worked as hard as I could to be a good kid. Unfortunately, this was my freshman year and many of my friends were just discovering alcohol. I relied on my few friends who didn't party and spent almost every weekend at home alone or with my friend Nick playing video games. The summer after my freshman year, my now smaller family returned to our cabins in Wisconsin. My mom and I were torn between our happy memories there with my dad and the fresh reminder that he wasn't there. On the one year anniversary of his death, my mom asked for some sign that we were going to be all right. And that afternoon, a double rainbow appeared across the entire lake. From that year on, every time my mom came on vacation, the rainbows would too. When I turned 16, my friend Nick's dad got him and I jobs at the new movie theater he was an investor in. The work was great, and it was an incredible way to turn off my brain. 
and it was there that I met my first boss, Pam. Pam had a wonderful sense of humor, an impeccable work ethic, and more compassion than you could shake a stick at. She was always aware when one of her employees needed to talk or just decompress and made her office a place we could go to do that. I had a lot of fantastic teachers in high school, but found myself drawn to Ms. Den Hartog's creative writing class. All in all, I think I took that class for like five semesters. Writing became my outlet for all the things in my life that didn't match up to the perfect life six-year-old me had set out to have, and all the feelings that I didn't want to burden my mom with. If I wasn't writing, I was performing. Band wasn't my thing, but I loved singing and acting. That wasn't extremely common among young men in Centerville, Iowa, so I managed to land the lead in several school plays and musicals, and also took solos in many of our choir concerts. In my junior year, love or lust draw me to a new, drew me to a new girl. My low self-esteem told me that she would never be interested in me, but our friendship grew quickly. My dislike, but my dislike for confrontation and my fear of rejection coalesced into an incredibly sappy love letter slipped into a book that she was reading. I wouldn't find out if she even read it for years. And that lack of response was the nail in the coffin of my self-image. I decided that if I ever wanted to have a chance with her or with anyone else, I needed to look like everyone else. And so over the course of five to nine months, I lost over 75 pounds. My dramatic weight loss did not result in a relationship. Um, during my senior year, I committed to attending the University of Iowa. My mom was a little bit scared by that idea. So one morning, she woke me up at 4 a.m. to tell me that we were going to visit Cedar Falls. My campus tour guide was TJ Warren. And in the course of the tour, he offhandedly asked if any of the guys in our group enjoyed singing. Mine was the only hand that went up, and he drew me to the front of the group to tell me about the UNI Varsity Men's Glee Club. At that point, I was sold. The next August, I packed up and headed for UNI. I landed in Chicago House in Bartlett Hall, surrounded by a bunch of upperclassmen who liked to party, and a bunch of freshmen who were just starting to explore their faith. We all became fast friends. House lunches and dinners were daily occurrences. Dorm room conversations included everything from theology to girl problems, often with half of the room completely wasted and the other half stone sober. I had never had a non-supervised alcoholic drink at this point, but began to dip my toes into the murky waters of underage drinking. The year I started college, my brother was released from prison with a strong conviction that he would never go back. He met his wife Robin and her son Mason, and they were quickly married and had a little girl of their own, Ashlyn. Back in CF, I was sound asleep in my loft bed one morning when someone shook me awake. My friend Cole's face was inches from mine, bright-eyed and smiling. He told me I was coming to church with him. After a brief argument, I relented and got ready. I walked into Prairie Lakes Church for the first time, sure that he had brought me to a theater and not a house of worship. But after the first song, I was sitting in the front row with my head in my hands, crying my eyes out, and I didn't know why. This was the pattern of my life for the next couple of years, exploring my faith and the UNI party scene with equal enthusiasm. My sophomore year brought a new friend, Ben, who slowly but surely started luring people away from PLC to Orchard Hill Church. I don't like change, so this made me grumpy. But one morning, I realized I was the only person in my row that I knew, and I gave in. Orchard it was. The switch to attending Orchard meant that we also began to check out BASIC on Thursday nights. We quickly became the rowdy front row kids, often starting kick lines during worship, and then when the message started, all pulling out notebooks and listening with rapt attention. 
My junior year, I made a promise to myself that I was going to take my faith more seriously. That lasted for about five minutes. I found myself struggling in my pre-med classes for the first time, really struggling in school for the first time ever, and a fairly disastrous organic chemistry test was the straw that broke this camel's back. I switched majors to business marketing. That failure broke my spiritual focus and I found myself partying again. One night after being confused, rejected, angry, and confused again, a friend and I threw ourselves a massive pity party and when he had left, I pulled up Facebook and found my eyes drawn to a notification that one of my friends was attending the God's Mountain mission trip. I was overwhelmed with the feeling that I needed to be on that trip. And so at 1.30 or two in the morning, I found an email address for Jeff Mickey and asked if there were any spots available. Five minutes later, he told me I was in. During that trip to Rushville, Missouri, through the supernatural influence of a dog, a stick, and a muddy hill, I gave my life to Jesus. I also discovered my life verse, James 1, 2 through 5. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Obviously, what does a directionless, brand new 21-year-old Christian do? Commit to life in ministry. And that, pretty much that day, I changed my major to leisure youth and human service. It was also on that trip that I got to know Jeff Mickey and Carla Chestnut, who would prove to be two of the most significant mentors and friends I could ever ask for. Back at UNI, I threw myself into every small group or Bible study experience I could. I had a hunger to know God more, and as Dave Bartlett would say, to give everything I know of myself to everything I know of him. This included leadership positions at BASIC and volunteering for pretty much anything people said they needed help with. The next year, I met a girl at BASIC and we began to spend a lot of time together. Life was feeling like it was back on track for maybe the first time since my dad had died. And then on October 28th, another known date, while I was getting ready for a friend's birthday party, I realized I had four missed calls from my mom. I called her back and through sobs, she told me that my brother had died in his sleep. My freshly rebuilt life crumbled around me all over again. I walked out of the room of my, my room of my apartment, a bag packed to go home and tears actively streaming down my face to find a living room filled mostly with strangers there to celebrate my friend's 22nd birthday. After explaining what had happened to my roommates and the entire apartment, they crowded around me in a wonderfully suffocating group hug and prayed for me before I left. I sat in my car for at least 20 minutes, just crying and praying, and asking God to bring Greg back to life, begging God to accept him into heaven. When I finally started the car, the song playing was Lord, I Don't Know by the Newsboys. The chorus goes, Lord, I don't know where all this is going or how it all works out, but lead me to peace that is past understanding, a peace beyond all doubt. I clung to those words. On my way home, I began the process of calling relatives. My Aunt Ruth was one of my first calls and she forbade me from talking on the phone while I was driving. In my first stop, uh, a gas station in Tama, I got out of the car and find that my Uncle Joe was pulled in next to me. He prayed for me, assured me that he'd contact his brothers and sisters, and offered to ride home with me, but I turned him down and got back on the road. 
Over the next few days, I received texts from so many basic students telling me they were praying for me and my family. And for I don't know how long, every day, at some point, one from Jeff Mickey telling me that he loved me and that I was gonna be okay. The day of the funeral, I was surprised to see my roommates, Jeff and Carla, the girl I was seeing and her roommate, and several other friends from you and I walk in the door of the funeral home. Centerville is a three hour drive from CF, and I never expected that any of them would make that trip. Thank God for community. I basically dropped out that semester. I couldn't bring myself to go back to normal life in CF when I knew Greg was gone. Thanks to a fantastic dean of students and some very kind professors, I managed not to throw that entire semester away. The next couple of years, I threw myself into ministry things as much as possible. School, work, everything else took a backseat to church. I needed God to be more real than real life, and I found that he was. My second senior year, I found out that my mom had a secret boyfriend, which made me incredibly uncomfortable, even though I, I was happy for her. And that October, I was at a basic Halloween party when my mom called me to tell me she was engaged. I didn't handle that news particularly well, but the more I got to know Jerry, the more I saw how much he loved my mom, and they were married that July. I finished school with an internship at Orchard in college ministry. After graduation, Jeff handed me a job description for kids ministry and told me I should apply. I did, and I got the job with the caveat that I needed to volunteer at VBS because I knew that if I hated that, I didn't have any business in kids ministry. I loved it and officially joined the staff that June. I buckled down and started working. A year and a half seemed to pass like water through my fingers, and suddenly I was taking another call from my mom, hearing that my grandma Shefchik had finally lost her battle with Alzheimer's. For the first time in my life, I was angry at God. I was angry for how much he'd put my mom through, for how many people he'd taken from me. I was angry because the community that I had relied on in college had, for the most part, graduated and moved away. I was angry because adult life still wasn't fulfilling that dream that I had at six, the dream of a perfect life. I felt like if my life had a white picket fence at all, it was made out of gravestones. Soon after that, the Orchard Kids team that I had been hired into began to dissolve. It seemed like everyone was retiring or moving or something. And to me, it just felt like one more community that was moving on while I was staying put. Luckily for me and my sanity, the new Kidsman director was a perfect fit and began rebuilding the team immediately. Randy brought in Nathan and Brittany, and not long after that, Emily. And to my surprise, morning turned to dancing. And my team was suddenly better than I could have imagined. Since then, I've continued working at Orchard. God has continued to prove himself bigger than my circumstances, and I've developed a small but strong group of friends, some of them here in Cedar Falls and some of them far away, but people I can trust and count on as much as you can count on anyone. For a guy who doesn't like change, I seem to find myself in the midst of it quite a bit. In the last year, our kids' ministry team has changed again. Nathan and Brittany are off following God's plan for their lives, and somehow we managed to convince Abby and Chelsea to join up with our bunch of crazies. And now, here I am, in the middle of a global pandemic where everything is constantly changing. And for me, that's meant a lot of extra work, relearning how to edit videos to bring Sunday school online, along with shooting video, video for those, re-editing scripts that I thought I was finished with two months ago, 
helping here and there with childcare for the Western home, and connecting and still trying to live up to my Enneagram 2 impulses to help wherever I can. But in some ways, that's been good for me. The extra work means that I'm not stuck inside with nothing but myself, and I'm a learner, so any chance I have to practice and develop new skills fills me up. Life clearly still isn't perfect, but by God's grace, every day I try to consider it pure joy. Thanks.